Well, we have been uh, looking at Genesis chapters 4 through 11, and we are uh, uh, getting towards the end of, of this sermon series. Um, in chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off, chap- Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. Let's prepare ourselves for the reading of God's word. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves he will be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. This is the word of God. Well, as a reminder, Noah and his family have been delivered through God's judgment in the flood and stepped out of the ark into what we've seen portrayed as a a new world, a new creation. And the sign of the rainbow we saw last time is the reminder of God's faithful provision to this new world that as long as it would endure that God would be faithful to provide for it and preserve it as long as it endures until the end of this present world. And what the flood points to then and is only a precursor towards and a shadow of its fulfillment and eternal uh, reality, which is the final judgment through which, by God's gracious salvation, God's people would be delivered into an eternal and perfectly renewed world, which, unlike this world, will be a world without end. The new heavens and the new earth, the glory of which is described in in, uh, picturesque terms of bright, brilliant rainbow colors. And that same contrast, then, of the, the dark that we see in the flood story, that the darkness of this present sinful world before the flood emerging into a world illuminated by the bright, brilliant rainbow of this cleansed world, that points to the hope that we long for. When this d- present sinful world, the darkness of our sinful world will emerge 
through God's judgment and restoration into a world illuminated by the bright, brilliant light of the glory of God in his new, perfect, eternal world where there will be no more darkness of sin ever entering into it again because sin has been fully and finally removed, defeated, cleansed for God's people in God's new world. And because this world emerging from the flood, we've seen God cleansed the world uh, through his judgment in the flood, but now we are reminded and, and uh, it's displayed to us in a very uh, interesting way that this is just a temporary and a provisional cleansing because what we see is that sin reemerges and rears its ugly head again in this new creation. Sin is still present in the human heart. There's a, a, a new world, new promises, new assurances, but the same old human heart. Sin's corrupting power and presence is still right there with them and within them. And death still reigns over them. That same sad outcome, if you remember back to chapter 5, there's the genealogies and then the flood interrupts that and then finally those genealogies are brought to an end at the end of chapter 9 here. And if you remember back numerous weeks ago to chapter 5, there's that sad refrain over and over again, and then he died, and then he died, picturing the reign of death over humanity as a role of sin entering into the world. And now that's brought to a conclusion at the end of our chapter, verse 29. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Sin is still present. Death still reigns. And it doesn't take very long after emerging from the ark uh, through the flood for sin to rear its ugly face. And that's what we see in this uh, interesting, kind of odd story that we've read this morning, uh, this sort of final and unflattering account of Noah and his sons, who to this point has been the bright light of righteousness uh, by God's grace, but now is the drunken sinner. And the Bible is, stories like this remind us of the uh, refreshing honesty of the Bible, that it is uh, refreshingly unafraid to tell of the unflattering, embarrassing, and sinful events in the lives of its heroes. And isn't that a, I think that's a testimony not only to its truthfulness, but it's also a reminder of God's grace to sinners like Noah and Ham and to us. And that even the, 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 the most righteous examples of God's people, uh, their lives are likewise stained with sin. Noah, who was the bright light of righteousness by God's grace, is nevertheless still a sinner along with his descendants. And this father of the new human race emerging into a new world after God's gracious establishing of a covenant with him starts things off with this spectacular fall. And it's, I think it's meant to uh, sound familiar to us, right? Uh, 
in the, back in the beginning, God uh, creates a, a world, and there is a, a father of a new humanity who God shows much grace to, and he spectacularly falls, right? And uh, now, of course, Noah's sin isn't the same as Adam's first sin and fall, but in many ways it's cast as a replay of it, as, as Noah following in the footsteps of Adam. Adam was in a garden, Noah is in a vineyard. Adam eats of the fruit of a tree, Noah drinks of the fruit of a vine that involves seeing and nakedness and covering of it and cursing as a result. And certainly Noah's sin, as I said, is not the same as it, in the same category as Adam's original sin, but it's cast as a replay to show us that Noah is following in Adam's footsteps. And the result, just like Adam, is that sin results in curse, the loss of divine blessing, and that it brings conflict and division in the human family. It's the same story that we saw in Adam and Eve's story and Cain and Abel's story, so goes Noah and his son's story, so goes the human story, unless and until God's grace enters in. And the picture God is giving us then is that no matter how many times he might cleanse sinners from the earth, that still wouldn't cleanse sin out of the human heart. And that still wouldn't cleanse this world from the curse of sin that it bears. And it's a reminder that the guilt and shame of sin is still present with humanity, even after the flood, because sin was still in the human heart. And what was needed was a greater, more powerful cleansing that would cleanse the depth of uh, sin in humanity's heart and, in fact, give us a new, renewed heart. And that is what God promises to us in the new covenant, we need a new heart. We need a new world. And that's what God, by his grace, gives us. In the gospel of Jesus, we receive, through repentance and faith in Jesus, a new heart and a new spirit within us and the promise of a new and renewed world. And so this strange, odd uh, little story of Noah reminds us that even righteous Noah follows in Adam's footsteps. He's still a sinner, and so are we. And we need the grace of Jesus to cleanse us and renew us, to give us new hearts and put his, new, his spirit within us, and to enable us to live out the righteous life he calls us to more and more in this life until we arrive at the goal of that in the next life. And so what we see here then, Noah, we learn, uh, plants a vineyard, Noah makes some wine, Noah drinks some wine, and, you know, so far so good. Um, you know, the, the Bible, this isn't the, the main point of this story probably, but the Bible doesn't teach that the consumption of wine is sinful. In fact, uh, Psalm 104 verses 14 and 15 we read, God makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. 
And so in this psalm, we learn that wine is a gift from God, right, alongside of oil and, and bread, which are not only given for, uh, for necessity of life, but for enjoyment in life. And in the Old Testament, wine was forbidden in certain situations, implying it wasn't forbidden in all circumstances. And uh, we are, as we look ahead, we see in the New Testament that Jesus uh, made wine for a wedding and by reputation was contrasted to John the Baptist and uh, criticized by his different approach to eating and drinking. Um, and um, so when we look at what the Bible teaches about wine, we see that it's not uh, condemned or prohibited outright. Noah plants a vineyard, makes some wine, drinks some wine. So far, so good. But then, verse 21, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Uh, not so good at this point. Uh, wine is a, is a gift from God given to glad in human hearts, but Noah uses this gift to sinful excess. He gets drunk with wine, and instead of using God's gift in a God-honoring way, leading to God-honoring joy, he misuses God's gift, and it leads to shame and sin because it's given as an enjoyment to life, but it's not the source of joy in life. And ironically, when we look to it to be the source of joy for us, it brings us misery. And the Bible, you know, as, I, as I, I do believe, it teaches that God's people can partake of wine in a God-honoring way. Some will abstain from it for various good reasons and shouldn't be looked down upon for that. Others will exercise freedom but should do it in holiness and with love and care for others. But at the same time, the Bible clearly warns us against the misuse of it and the destructive results that it can bring upon ourselves and others. And we're warned of that here in this passage. What we see here, personal shame and family tension result. And rather leading to festive joy, it results in shame and dishonor and curse and enslavement. And the, the message of our culture it today is that... Uh, Wine or alcohol is needed in excess to have joy, but the reality is, is that its excess brings nothing but an excess of misery and destruction. And while Noah's sin uh, of drunkenness isn't necessarily, uh, isn't describing addiction, that is an unfortunate reality. And... Um, Maybe you, maybe you here today just need to be honest with yourself. And whether it's with alcohol or something else that is an addiction, maybe you need to be honest and get some help. And uh, maybe it's something that you're able to hide from some people, or maybe you're not in control of it as you think you are. And it's already bringing destructive results to you and those around you. And, you know, I, I've seen people do just that and get honest and get help and get prayer and get healing 
from Jesus. Uh, you know, we all need that in, in one way or another. We're all works in progress. We all struggle with sin in some way or another. And sometimes certain sins can get a hold of us. But God hasn't left us resigned to slavery and defeat. His grace can give us deliverance and healing. And it's such a joy to see that when people look to Jesus and receive it from him. And so Noah's drunkenness then leads to him acting shamefully. He exposes himself, uncovers his nakedness, which now, you know, naked, being naked isn't bad or wrong or dirty or sinful in itself, although the context of the nakedness matters quite a lot in, in all those things. Uh, but the point here in Genesis is, uh, when was the last incident of nakedness in the book of Genesis? Well, it was with Adam and Eve who first in their created state of original righteousness were naked and unashamed and walked with God. But then in their fallen state of sin, they saw that they were naked and they were afraid and ashamed and hid from God. And so then nakedness is symbolic of the shame of our sin. And in that culture in particular, the exposure of one's nakedness was a very shameful thing. And so Noah's sin of drunkenness then provides the occasion for Ham's sin. And, you know, to our eyes, uh, you know, it, it, we read this and we think, you know, isn't Ham the real victim here, uh, seeing his father's nakedness? Um, but although, you know, Noah's uh, sin was sinful enough, uh, really it's Ham's sin here that's emphasized. Uh, and in that culture in particular, Ham's sin would certainly be thought of as the more heinous because it was not only a violation of a high cultural value, but of a divine value which would become enshrined in the, the law of God in the, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, a law which came with severe penalty for breaking it. And now uh, we, uh, you know, don't see as readily and easily as they would have seen this incident because we don't live in the same kind of culture that um, so highly values the honoring and respecting of parents as they did, but that's what's at issue here with Ham's sin. Ham sees his father's nakedness, and, you know, the, Ham's not like a young little toddler, right? He's a grown man, uh, and remember, uh, Noah's exposed nakedness is a sort of source of shame, and his son seeing him is a humiliation to his father, but more than that, not only does he, uh, he fail to cover his father's nakedness, but instead of doing that, uh, and instead of treating his shame with discretion, he goes and spreads his father's shame by proclaiming it and publicizing it to his brothers. And the, the picture that we see, it's a, it's as if he is delighting in seeing another's fall and humiliation and seeking to heap further disrespect, dishonor, and humiliation upon his father. 
You know, it, it, what, what seems to be happening, is Ham goes to his brothers and says, you won't believe what dad did. Come take a look. It's a dishonoring and disrespecting of his father. And they, his brothers, though, and we see this particularly in contrast uh, between Ham's actions and his brother's actions, that they refuse to participate in that. The, the sinfulness of Ham's actions is drawn out by the contrast to his brother's actions, who not only refuse to participate in the sin of Ham, but instead seek to honor their father and remedy the situation by uh, taking great care not to look at their father's nakedness, requiring them to sort of awkwardly, difficultly walk in backwards with a garment over their shoulder so that they can cover him without looking at him. And the contrast of that is Ham, who, in, who uh, instead of seeking to cover over his father's shame and humiliation, seeks to further expose him and increase his shame and humiliation. He disrespects his father and seeks to spread his shame and seems to delight in seeing him humiliated. And instead of covering his father's nakedness, he seeks to further expose it, whereas in contrast, his brothers honor and respect their father, even in his uh, not best moment. They seek to conceal it rather than expose it. And they are then portrayed as imitating God, who in the garden clothed Adam and Eve, covered them in their nakedness. How does this apply to us? Well, I think the, the most direct application is uh, the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your God is giving you. This command brings with it a promise of blessing to those who keep it. Honor your father and your mother. Though, you know, like Noah and like all humans, there will be times when all of us are less than honorable. God calls us to honor them, and this is true whether you are uh, one of the younger ones among us or one of the older ones among us, that if you are blessed to have parents on this earth, honor them. They brought you in this world, and generally speaking, they put forth much effort and sacrifice and love to raise and nurture you, and God calls us to honor our parents. <clears throat> Second, uh, Proverbs warns us against the sin of gossip. Proverbs 17, 9 says, Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. You know, it's easy to uh, sinfully delight in seeing another person fall. Uh, whether it's someone uh, we know or don't know, someone who's an enemy, we can delight in seeing another person fall. And we can delight in spreading the, sh the shame and humiliation of another all the further. And sometimes we do that through gossip. But that is uh, often unnecessary and sinful. 
And more often than not, we could, bear, uh, we could do well to uh, imitate Shem and Japheth rather than Ham, rather than shaming and dishonoring others, honoring them, rather than spreading and further uh, exposing and multiplying the shame of someone else, seeking to cover over it in love. <clears throat> now, um, Noah's response then to Ham's sin. Uh, it's hard, I, you know, <laughs> admittedly, it's, it's hard to know how to take this. Um, <clears throat> and often in the Old Testament, we aren't given evaluation of people's actions, uh, which adds to the difficulty in some circumstances. Uh, but uh, Noah responds to Ham's sin by cursing Ham's descendants, some of them. Anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, these are the first words that Noah has spoken. Um, and it's, again, it's hard to know how to take them in many ways. I think these are best understood as a, a prayer or a, a request that nevertheless ends up bearing prophetic force. Um, uh, but it's hard to, so these are the first words that Noah has spoken. He has, um, you know, uh, gone through the, the flood, uh, built an ark, survived the flood, emerged out of the ark, and in all that, he hasn't said anything. Um, he hasn't spoken a word. But his first words then come after arising out of a drunken stupor, uh, and those first words are, Cursed be Canaan. Uh, as I said, it's, it's hard to know how to take those words. Uh, I, I think they're best understood as a request uh, that uh, nevertheless in God's sovereignty take on prophetic force. But it's also hard to know how to uh, morally evaluate this response of Noah is it a just and righteous pronouncement, uh, or is it a vengeful, spiteful request, where rather than uh, responding with words of confession and repentance for his own sin, he speaks vengeful words to Ham for Ham's sin. Uh, it's hard to know. Uh, I don't know that I know, uh, but as I was thinking about that and, and wrestling with that, uh, I'm just glad, that, and aren't you glad, that we worship a Savior who prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies. And however we understand Noah's words here, we ought to be reminded to do the same. Romans 12, 14 tells us to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Noah uh, uh, prays for or pronounces a curse on Ham. Uh, not on Ham, actually, if you notice. Not on Ham, the offender, but on Canaan, Ham's son. And as I said, Noah's words do end up being prophetic because as we've already been tipped off in the narrative two times, uh, we've been told twice that Ham is the father of Canaan. And so we've been prepared to have Canaan, the 
father of the Canaanites in view here. And this is where the prophetic force of these words come in. The Canaanites, who were those in possession of the land of Canaan, which God promised to his people, promised to drive out the Canaanites and uh, bring his people into possession of this land. And so the Canaan is cursed instead of Ham, and that points to then the fulfillment of these prophetic words in the conquest of the land of Canaan. And um, the question then is why does uh, uh, Noah curse uh, Ham's son for Ham's sin? And I think the, the, the answer is in the fulfillment of the, the, this uh, prophecy in um, the conquest, but also um, in all of that, we see the fulfillment of the biblical uh, uh, principle that sometimes, <laughs> uh, like father, like descendants. And so certainly God doesn't punish children for uh, the parents' sins uh, of which those children are innocent of, but children can suffer the consequences of their parents' sin, and children can walk in the footsteps of their parents' sins. And in that sense, then, uh, the Bible does talk about children be for being punished for the sins of their parents when they reap the consequences of those sins or when they walk in the footsteps of their parents such that God punishes not innocent children unjustly, but guilty children, guilty of those same sins, justly. And that's, I think, what is in view here. The reason, then, for this punishment upon Ham's descendants for Ham's sin is not ultimately merely uh, ethical, but moral. That Ham's uh, descendants through Canaan follow in his footsteps of sin and in fact multiply his sins in their uh, in, in their uh, sinfulness. And uh, that's important to note uh, because this passage has been used uh, historically very unfortunately as a biblical and theological justification for the inferiority and enslavement of black African people uh, in American history. And this is a gross misuse and abuse of Scripture. Uh, which not only fails to remember one of the uh, main burdens of these early chapters of Genesis that teach us we are all uh, one human family, descended from the pa same parents and equally made in the image of God. Uh, but furthermore, what, it's simply incorrect because not all of Ham's descendants are cursed. Uh, only Canaan. And so the cursing of Canaan has uh, everything to do with uh, the driving out of the Canaanites and the conquest of the land of Canaan. And again, it was not primarily or merely an ethnic principle, but a moral one. As the Canaanites continued in and multiplied the sins of their father, Ham.
One writer sums it up this way, the Canaanites were to suffer the curse and the bondage not because of the sins of Ham, but because they themselves acted like Ham because of their own transgressions. And we see this in God's uh, preparing his people for the conquest when God's people are warned that when they enter into the land, you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. And then it goes on to list uh, uh, a number of sins, and it continues, for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And that list of sins, uh, in, in the middle of that is a list of sexual sins, which Ham's sin wasn't sexual, but those sexual sins are described euphemistically as the uncovering of nakedness, which is what's at issue in this story with Noah. And so the picture is painted, not that the Canaanites were ethnically inferior or in some way, but morally corrupt. And that's the basis for their expulsion, which is God's judgment on them. And God's people are warned that if they followed in the footsteps of the Canaanites and those sins, they would be judged and expelled, and eventually they were. And in fact, Rahab, the Canaanite, who repents and believes is incorporated into the people of God. And that is what these remaining chapters of Genesis, of Genesis 1 through 11 are going to point us towards the hope for all nations. God's redemptive plan, we're going to see in chapter 12, we'll end with chapter 12, begins uh, with Abraham, with one person and one nation by God's grace, God is faithful to preserve his promise uh, to preserve the offspring of the woman uh, through whom salvation over the serpent would come, beginning with one person and one nation, but from the get-go, never intended to remain with one nation, but always intended to reach all nations, all peoples. And that is our hope. That though sin separated us from God and fragmented the human family, the gospel, by God's grace, now reconciles us to God and brings us into the one family of God. No matter how far or deeply sin has corrupted us, God's grace restores us to God and restores us to one another. Because God, in his grace, clothes us and covers the shame and guilt of our sin. And we're celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. And isn't that a great reminder of what this sacrament is all about? The gospel of Jesus and the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners who in, their, in our sin are guilty before a holy God and deserving of his just displeasure and eternal wrath. 
We are uh, in and of ourselves exposed before his holy sight with no answer or defense to give and no means to adequately cover ourselves. But by God's grace, he came to clothe us and cover us. And that's what the clothing of uh, Adam and Eve's nakedness uh, it, it points to. That when they tried to cover themselves, they couldn't. God still saw through it. And they were still guilty before him. But God, through an animal sacrifice, clothed them and covered them by his grace. And that points to the true sacrifice, the true covering, the one that deals with sin once for all, the covering through which we are forgiven by God and cleansed by God through the laying down of his life the giving of his body and the shedding of his blood in which he suffered the wrath of God against our sin in our place. He took that from us and gives us his righteousness, which we receive by faith and which clothes us so that we can be in a renewed and right relationship with him. That's what this points to. And... It points to God's presence with us, to his spirit within us, which strengthens us and enables us to live more and more unto righteousness and die more and more unto sin. And it reminds us that as we struggle and as God indwells us and empowers us, to live out those new covenant promises which he has begun in us, it reminds us that one day we will be perfected so that it won't be same old human heart, but sin will be no longer present in us and death will be no more. That's our hope. That's the hope of the gospel, and that is our eternal hope. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, <laughs> he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that in your grace you came to us who were guilty, full of shame because of sin. You covered us. And you enabled us to stand before you, to be reconciled to you, and to be delivered from your wrath and to be brought into uh, the glory of being your children, sons and daughters of God, dearly beloved forever. And now we ask that as you have remind us of all that Christ has done for us to clothe us by grace, we 
that you would be present with us in a special way. Strengthen us, we pray, to live unto righteousness and die unto sin until that day when you return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.